0: Alright, so we're, we're here rapidly approaching the end of the book of Revelation, and John is beginning to reveal more and more about the future, um, and although he starts the book uh, by focusing on the, the persecuted church and their struggle uh, with the first century Roman Empire and the things that are going on there, um, the things that he says must soon take place, um, now at the end of the vision, he's fast-forwarding to the, the end of time, to the, uh, the final day when all of this will come to a close. And, and this means that, that the Roman Empire serves as a, a symbol, as we've already seen uh, numerous times here. They serve as a symbol of all of the empires that are going to come throughout the course of this present evil age. Um, and so... Beginning with those first two bold judgments that we saw back in Revelation 16, um, John begins to focus in more intently on the events associated with the end of the age in the chapters that follow. And, and I believe, as, as I think John did, that he was, that we're living in the last days, in the final days, final hours. Um, and, and so it was very front of mind for him uh, that he wasn't Writing this thinking this is gonna be 3,000 years from now. I don't think I think he was writing it thinking It's gonna be in a week next week. Look out. It's coming like Something's happening very soon Uh, and I I think we can still maintain that type of Expectancy even though it's been 2,000 years like that's that's the the tension of the, uh, the the idea of revelation in this picture is that yeah we're still waiting we're we're still in this waiting time uh, but we're waiting for something that has been assured it's it's hoped for and hope isn't just something that we're like oh let's see when's it going to come uh, i sure hope you know this present comes this year no this is a hope that is assured and solid as uh, so we know it is going to happen it's just a matter of when and we can trust him in that and so here in chapter 19 we we turn our attention away. We've spent the last you know, chapter, and two chapters really, focusing in on this uh, harlot of Babylon here uh, and her description and you know, what it's all about here, how she colludes with uh, the beast and then saw her destruction and the uh, cheering that came from it. Uh, and, and we see the, the fall of Babylon that you can go back to the Old Testament, back to you know, Jeremiah 50 and 51 and see this depicted there very much the same way that we see in Revelation 17 and 18. Uh, but here we get this, this shift, and it's a, a shift, a comparison if you want to look at it that way, between the harlot who is committing spiritual adultery with the nations against Christ and now the bride of christ who is preparing herself for her groom so this this comparison continues to go uh and we see this contrast that is building building even further uh on one hand you've got uh the corrupting influence of babylon the great in terms of a seductress who has enticed the kings and the nations into committing spiritual adultery with her uh but uh, her allure is her superficial beauty, her great wealth, and her power, and these are all things that are going to fade in short order. Uh, and so here, as we get into to chapter 19, chapter 18 comes to an end with a description of of Babylon the Great, being crushed with this giant millstone, uh, this millstone, and so no longer are there sounds of laughter or music within this city. No longer will there be sounds of life or commerce in her streets. There is retribution because uh, these streets have run red with the blood of the prophets and the saints, and the harlot has helped shed the blood of the saints. She holds the blood of the saints in her cup there, Uh, but God has now poured out his wrath and will take all life from Babylon the Great. No voices or sounds inside of her wall, only silence. Her fate is sealed and her doom is sure. That's where we are at here in Revelation. And so with that, with everything that we've learned about Babylon the Great and uh, all of this up to this point, we turn now to the first 10 verses of Revelation 19 where, where we've given this picture of the bride of Christ, We get this image of the bride of Christ uh, who is there in opposition. The church stands in opposition to the one who's been committing spiritual adultery. Now this bride is pure. And in the midst of this, with the destruction of Babylon now complete, now it's time for a wedding. (laughs) It's it's a, a very kind of an odd juxtaposition that you see this end and then immediately it's into a celebration and a wedding. That's a, a little odd for our modern ears for us to hear, but you know, that's what we see here. Uh, and so the account of the harlot that started is now done, uh, and the destruction of the harlot becomes the occasion of the marriage of the Lamb. And so we get sounds of celebration, sounds of celebration here. All right. So the Messiah here is ready to take his bride. Ready to take his bride or his wife. This word can mean either one of them as we see the bride referred to. Uh, I I like bride. It's just something we've kind of gotten used to with our ears hearing the bride of Christ, but uh, wife of Christ would work just as well. Uh, This doesn't have to be just a wedding day. Uh, It could be an anniversary celebration. (laughs) This is continuing. This isn't just a honeymoon. Uh, This is a marriage that will last for eternity. So, Five times in these six, in these uh, ten verses that we're going to look at, really in six of these verses, five times we see this word, Alleluia. And it is only here in the New Testament that we see this word, Alleluia, in the New Testament. We see it in the Old Testament all the time. Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. And what does it mean, do you know? That Yah praise the Lord. It does. Exactly. Exactly. Praise the Lord. Alleluia. That Yah on the end is Yahweh. That's the name of God. That's Lord. And the Ale is praise. So Alleluia is there. Uh, so it's praise the Lord that we see. And, and it's here. This is the rejoicing that we see. Alleluia. Alleluia. repeated over again. And by the way, you can drop the H uh, and spell it that way as well. Sometimes you'll see it. A L L I E u-i-a yeah that sometimes or with an h and an h on the end either way works remember we're talking about greek and hebrew and it's different writing altogether. so these are just different ways to to spell stuff and, and pronounce it uh, so hallelujah hallelujah either one so um first one first one we'll see this after this so after where we're pushing back to chapter 18 after what he just saw in chapter 18 he heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. Big multitude in heaven. We, we don't know exactly who this is that's making this noise, but I have a feeling that it is the multitude that we saw earlier that was unable to be named, uh, uh, unable to be counted. This is all of the people. Uh, if you Look in chapter 7, verse 9. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne, crying out with loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Uh, I think this is the same scenario. This is the same picture here, just we, we've brought it to a different uh, image. Okay, so this is this great multitude, and they're crying out, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. And that's that's important. His judgments are true and just. Because I, I know a lot of people with our kind of modern Sensibilities. Look at these passages in chapter 17 and 18, and even in 19, and you see uh, a Jesus coming back, and his robe is dipped in blood, and he's killing people with swords, and and here at the the end of it, you know, you see you know birds being called to come and feast on the kings and uh, the flesh of mighty men and stuff like this. It's a pretty gruesome image, pretty gruesome image, and so you see the commitment of the people of God to say that. (laughs) <laughs> You're God. And whatever you judge is true and it's just. So both of those things, that it is right, it's true, and it is righteous, it's just. You, you aren't sinning in this in any way. Uh, this is perfect in all of its ways. Uh, and so they they shout out. I go, go back over to Revelation 18, 20. Uh, and you can see the command that was given there. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Uh, and you see here why they are crying out in praise. They're they're crying out in praise because their prayers have been answered, uh, because now it is time for God to take vengeance. Uh, and that this isn't something that we we gloat over and that we lord over saying yeah we took vengeance and we did this no this is vengeance is mine declares the lord i will repay this is his repaying this is the time when all of the uh, bills come due uh it's the the end of the line there's no more uh, mercy to be found except for those who are already invited to the wedding feast that we'll see here in a moment and so this is no small group rejoicing in heaven. Uh, he describes them as a great multitude. Uh, I think, again, like I said, it's the same multitude that we see earlier in Revelation 7. They come from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language, uh, meaning that God has his people among all nations. Uh, they've come out of the Great Tribulation. They've come out of this period that we are now living in, this period between the first and the second advent. And they either died Trusting in Jesus as their Savior, or they were put to death as martyrs for their confession, or they refused to worship the beast and his image. Uh, however, they got there. Uh, they are now there, and these are the same ones that, back in Revelation chapter six, verse ten, Revelation six ten, called out with a loud voice, "O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood?" on those who dwell on the earth and we see these prayers being answered they've suffered greatly but now has come the time for them to celebrate Uh, they are celebrating hallelujah the time has come it's here and so immediately after their their amen uh, that they they speak here uh, another voice is heard directing the the multitudes uh, to worship the God who's delivered his people from all of their enemies. And we see it down in verse uh, 4 and 5. So let's, let's keep reading uh, a little bit on, on here. This is chapter or verse 2. It says, For his judgments are true and just, and he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted uh, the earth with her immorality. Notice that 4. You know, hallelujah. Salvation and power belong to our God. Why are they saying praise the Lord? because his judgments are true and just because we can anytime you see a four you got to kind of figure out what the four means and here it's a because this is a causation uh for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants that's a weird way that's phrased but i think that's probably the best way to say it has avenged the blood of his servants on her Uh, is kind of how it is in the real <laughs> Greek text. And so once more, they, they cry out, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. I, I think this may be uh, a little bit of a play on uh, on the idea that Rome was considered the eternal city. Um, and so if this is Rome who is being cast down as Babylon here, uh, saying that the smoke goes up forever and ever, it's almost like, yeah, you're still an eternal city, you're just now eternally damned uh you know it's it's a little play on that could be uh but this is another one of those ideas that um sometimes biblical scholars can get to the point where they go well i don't i I agree with hell but i don't get this whole idea that it's forever and it just keeps going on and, and you've got Uh, some very good, you know, uh, biblical scholars like John Stott, who I love most of his writings, but he would consider himself what we call an annihilationist, uh, which means that he thinks folks are going to be in hell, and they're going to be snuffed out, and that's going to be it, and it's over, and I don't see that in the text. When I see the smoke from her goes up forever and ever, and uh, you see Jesus speaking of uh, the worm dying, not, and and things like this, that it, it tends to bring to mind not just a one-time, it's all done, but a longer, more extended thing. But that's up to God. That's ultimately up to him. He's the one that is executing this judgment. And if he sees annihilation as fair, then that's up to him. I'm just glad I'm not going to be part of it <laughs> because of his grace. Uh, I don't think it's necessary uh, that we you know, harp on that and say, oh, it's got to be eternal and do this. Uh, I personally think it is. But it's not something I'm going to like stake my you know Christian faith out on or say, well, you're just completely out in left field if you think that there's something here. Because there are arguments to be made for it. I tend to think that the evidence falls further onto the uh, eternality of hell rather than the temporal nature of hell. But that's just me. All right, verse 4. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures, uh, so that they individually get involved here. Uh, and I, I want to do a, a study on these angelic, uh, heavenly creatures, just all by itself, because there's so much here. Uh, but these twenty-four elders, these four living creatures that are here, uh, these are these are divine creatures. They're getting involved in uh, the rejoicing. Alongside the people that have been redeemed. Okay, so this is the joining of uh, God's people from a spiritual sense. You know, the, those that He has created to worship Him spiritually, who have not fallen like Satan and his demons have. Uh, so you've got His spiritual family that's here joining with His earthly, you know, human family uh, that are all being brought together and in, in one. Uh, giant worship ceremony here uh, and so the 24 elders and these four living creatures they fall down and they worship God who was seated on the throne saying amen and hallelujah. so they are they're speaking out in agreement that, that's what amen means is not it's not just I'm ending my prayer now amen is a I agree with you I testify to that uh, yes <laughs> so when you when you say it' you're, you're putting your name and your your spirit behind it. Uh, And so they they say amen to everything that has been spoken by uh, believers at this point and and get behind it. And then from the throne, you've got this image that the people are bowing down before the throne. They're worshiping. They're speaking their praise. Now the heavenly creatures are bowing down. And now from the throne, we get this voice saying, and and this is something I'm still working on, and you all can help me out with this. What does it say? Praise our God. All you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. So who's saying our God? (laughs) Is it Jesus? Is it God himself who's saying this from the throne? If so, it doesn't seem to me like it would be an hour here. It would be praise my God or praise your God or praise me or praise God just in general. Uh, This hour gives me a little bit of pause to wonder whether or not it's Christ uh, that is saying this, but at the same time, what do we see Jesus say while he's on earth? You know, he speaks of his heavenly father in the third person all the time. He says, I need to go be with my father. I've got to you know, have this relationship with my father. It's a, it's a relationship that it seems to be a separation there, but we see there's unity as well. So there, he's one with the father in, in being, but separate in person. And so uh, he, he's pushing praise to his father. I, I tend to think this is Jesus that's saying this. Uh, it's the voice that we're gonna hear and then he's gonna be unveiled here in just a moment in the end of chapter nineteen. Well, but,
1: the fact that it says from the throne, yeah. There wouldn't be anybody else on the throne. I mean it wouldn't be yeah
0: yeah it wouldn't wouldn't be it another would angel, not Michael or anything right, there I mean. Un- unless it's saying from the throne like from the midst of the throne where these creatures all are uh, but it doesn't say that it says from the throne right it says from the throne a voice yeah. came saying so I think we're supposed to get that this is Jesus um, or God himself but then that makes it really hard if it's yeah. if it's the voice yeah, of God, God saying praise himself. our God. Wait a second! <laughs> it gets weird. So I tend to think it's Jesus, and He is He is saying, "I am joining in now." Yeah. So we get not just we get the people of God who've been redeemed, the heavenly creatures that are there, and the Trinity itself all joining in this praise and of God. Our
1: intercessor, intercessor, intercessory. Our mediator, intercessor. Yeah. So for Him to join in just kind of follows everything that He has before
0: yeah it's just a really cool picture here to, to see the levels and the layers that are all being joined in praise so praise our God all you his servants so anyone who serves and, and I think I think that he's inviting the the creation at this point to Begin worship and and to reach out and worship all you his servants. This is like the Lion King holding it up and and you've got, you've got elephants and everybody braying and doing their their stuff. They're all like, yeah, we've got a king. We're worshiping. This is this moment of of coronation here. So pray, there, God, all you his servants, you who fear Him, and I, I that's that's uh, something that I, I had to go with some of my my students. I've got. Some 11th and 12th graders who have a, a problem with this idea of fearing God. They're like, How do you, how, does fear God and loving God go hand in hand? Yeah, like, how do, exactly how do they work together? If, you, if you're commanded to fear Him or you do this, then that's not love, that's just fear. I'm like, Should
1: ah. you fear the discipline of your earthly father and still love Him? Is there fear of earthly judgment from your father over an actually? did, but you still love him. Yeah. That's the same.
0: Thing it's here. the it's the same. I think they would look and they would go, well, but that's love in spite of the fear. And the Bible talks about this fear leading into love. Like this is fear that leads you to love God further and love God more because you see his righteousness and you see your own failure here. And you are, you are then at this point fearing him And fearing, you know, consequences and whatnot. But it's also a fear of it's a respect, it's a, it's an honor, it's a recognition of you not being him. (laughs) Like I'm not you, and I'm gonna step out of the way and let you be you. Let you be God. Other things
1: too, because it's also the fear that we know this, so we know and fear his wrath and his obedience, his discipline. And it's not just on us. I fear it for people who don't believe because yeah. we know what is coming to them.
0: Yeah, and and it can be I don't know. I, I come from a bit of a, a, a fundamentalist kind of uh, religious background, and so it can be very tempting to kind of lean into that and just be like, "You're going to burn, <laughs> you know? Just <laughs> you, you going to hell? Mm, it's is going to happen." It's, it's hot, and there's no relief. You know, you can get there, and, and that doesn't communicate the full picture. It's certainly a message. It's certainly part of uh, part of the gospel. Yeah, it's certainly part of the gospel that's there, but it's not the full message. And so the guy standing on the side of the road with just the sign, Repent or Burn, it doesn't communicate all of it, but, hey, it's better than nothing. <laughs> I, I would rather somebody say, repent the end is near there's there's you know hell on the other side of it for those who don't know Christ then say nothing and because to say nothing is to simply either say you don't believe that that's the way that it is or you don't care about that person enough to say anything it'd be like watching a building burn and walking past the fire uh the the pull stations and just being like ah, that'll be all right they'll figure it out on their own no nah, we don't need an alarm I don't need to sound the alarm there's an alarm that needs to be sounded here. Uh, there's an escape that can be made. Uh, and it's not, it's not an escape that's just like, oh, cool, now I get to get out of this fire. It's, it's love. There's a, anyway, uh, well, I'm preaching to the choir here <laughs> as we know this. So it's good. Um, what I, uh, there's a, a couple of major developments that come as we get into this. As we get into uh, verses, you know, six and seven here. So let's let's keep going here. So not only is the destruction for of the harlot a cause for celebration. That's certainly a big thing. Uh, but the destruction means that the consummation of all things is at hand, and we've got a wedding to celebrate. So here's verse verses six and seven. It says then I heard. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude." So we've got the great multitude again speaking, and this is the roar of many waters, the sound of many mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. We've got that our God again. Uh, I tend to think that this this entire roar here is the 24 elders and uh, the four living creatures along with the multitude. Just echoing this mighty sound. So all of the heavenly creatures on earth, on heaven, in heaven, uh, speaking this praise. Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult. Uh, let's exalt his name and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So. Lots of stuff going on in there. We'll hit a couple of developments that are going on here. All right. First, is, is there in, in verse 6 the statement that is made? Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. That word, where's the, where's the verb in there? Teenagers, where's the verb in that? For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Reigns. You got it. Reigns is the verb. That's the action. He reigns, the Lord God, the Almighty. Well, this, this verb reigns is a, and I'm going to do geeky you know, Greek stuff, this is an aorist tense, which, again, like Pluperfect this morning, is not one that we normally deal with. Uh, this is specifically an ingressive an aorist tense, uh, which could be better translated, the Lord God Almighty has begun to reign. He has begun to reign. So it is true that, yes, he reigns. He reigns. It could be translated, it probably best is translated in the present tense, but he has begun to reign. Uh, and so out of what has happened here in chapter 17, 18, uh, in the beginning of verse 9 in chapter 19, we now see, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, has begun to reign. He's He's now taken up His full throne. He uh, and and He's not saying it's not saying there that He hasn't reigned in the past. What it's saying now is that He He previously had reigned in His mercy and in His love, but now He's reigning in the fullness of who He is because the uh, the harlot has been wiped out. I I think for uh, for confusion's sake, it's probably best to translate it as just rains uh, because then it gets the idea of past, present, and future, but the, there is this sense that it is starting here, and so we've got to ask, well, what type of rain is starting now at this point? My
1: Bible says um, the Almighty He is praised for establishing his reign
0: without rival or resistance of Christ's return. You got it. In my notes, I said, Until this moment, God has ruled according to his long-suffering mercies, allowing evil to run its course, even allowing the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, and the harlot to persecute his people. But no longer. God's wrath is now complete. It's done. And so uh, John foresees a time when God destroys the harlot, Uh, And it's all over at this point. And that was foretold back in in Revelation 11, uh, verse 15. Back in 11, verse 15, you see, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever which, again, this is the idea of the cyclical nature of it. That was the seventh trumpet, which is the same thing that's going on here. These are the events that are happening in this time of the seventh trumpet, and it's just pulling it out, and we're getting to see it more and more in, in glorious detail now. Uh, but he, is, he reigns forever and ever here. Uh, and there's another development here. Uh, so that's the first one. He, he has begun to reign. So the, the second is the, the magnitude of the celebration because it's the marriage of the Lamb. And this is a picture that I don't know that we talk about enough in, in churches because we, we get the picture of the church as you know, the body of Christ. We talk about the church as a, a building that's being built up in Christ and uh, you know, lots of different ways. But we don't talk about the church as the bride of Christ or a wife of Christ very often. Um, and it's something that is throughout Scripture. We see it all over the place. Um, I wanted to look back in the, in the Old Testament here, but let's, let's read it again first. So uh, according to John, it says, the, the wedding of the Lamb has come, and its bride has made herself ready. Okay, the, the, With the coming of the kingdom comes this wedding now. This is the, the unification, the joining of these... Uh, kingdoms, the the kingdom of the spiritual and the physical being united together in one and this giant uh, merging celebration. Okay, this is, everything's coming together in one. Uh, And so, here not only is the bride made herself ready, okay, and and his bride has made herself ready, but also, uh, but also, uh, we see that she has been made ready by him it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen bright and pure okay so we get this picture of what it means to be saved and what it means to have good works being portrayed even in this uh, picture some look at this and they they immediately are like oh look the bride has made herself ready she's done some righteous deeds but you miss verse 8 and you miss the it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen well if it's just our works if it's just us doing it then there's no granting us to do it Um, and so what is what is this how do we uh, square this up biblically what is this talking about Uh, and you can look at Ephesians chapter 2 let's flip back to Ephesians 2 and this is a, a passage that I bet most of you in here might even have memorized Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. It says for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And a lot of times we stop there and we're like, see, it's not you. You don't do it. But keep reading. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I think here this is the kind of key to seeing what's being talked about here in Revelation is that we are his workmanship and are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That our good works are actually Jesus's good works. <laughs> They're his works. This is him doing it. Uh, there's another passage in Philippians uh, that talks about um, uh, making your... Calling an election, sure that that with uh, uh, with fear and trembling, um, what is it? Uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is not you that works, but Him who works through you, Him who works in you. Talking about Christ, um, that that these linens that we are dressed with as the bride of Christ. Uh, these are not things that, that we put on through our good works and, and that we do this on our own <laughs> they, they are our works they are things that we have done but we do them through him uh, other places in scripture I think it's in First Peter it says let him who serves serve in the strength that God supplies so that in all things God may get the glory uh, not us that, that idea is, is that we're not doing these things to gussy ourselves up. And this is a comparison that's being made back to the harlot, who the harlot dressed in all the fine attire with gold and jewels and everything, covered with all kinds of adornment that was there, out of pride. Well, here, uh, the, the bride is in fine linen, bright and pure white linens. Ever wonder why we have brides dressed in white? Probably from this. It's probably where it comes from in the first place. The the entire idea of, yeah, brides dressed in white comes from uh, this picture of the perfect wedding that we're going to see. Uh, And so the the command that was given back in uh, chapter 18 of come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins and share in her plagues, uh, that command that we looked at last week, uh, is not just... A command it's a gift okay the the gift of coming out of and and fleeing from sin is a gift that's given to us by God and then the life that is lived outside of the stain of sin is a further gift it's a sign that we have come out okay so we have uh, the the righteousness of God at justification hey okay? the there's three parts to salvation. When you see the word saved in Scripture, you've got to ask yourself, what is this talking about? Is this talking about saved past tense? Like when I first met Christ and he saved me? Because we have been saved through justification. We, We receive his righteousness. We are made holy and saints before God at the moment of our salvation. We have been saved. We are being saved as well. So it could say, you are saved through your good works. Yes, we are, because we are being saved. We are being sanctified day by day by day and being made more and more into the image of his son. Uh, and that's the, the things that we clothe ourselves with. But you can only clothe yourselves with those if you have received it in the first place. Okay, it, it's, not a, it's not a fake it until you make it kind of thing. This doesn't work here. You, you don't fake good works and then make up that you had justification in the past. Either you had justification and then you are sanctified and are on the road to being glorified or you are just working on your own, doing your own things in your own strength and it's an illusion. And that's a a scary premise for some people. They wanna go, well, how do I know? You know because you stick with it. You persevere till the end. Uh, Those who persevere till the end will be saved. If you don't persevere, it wasn't real in the first place. And then we are here at this moment of glorification. So that's the third salvation. You will be saved. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. And, and this is not just here. Uh, you can look in Isaiah chapter 61. I love this passage uh, because some people are like, this is in Isaiah? doesn't sound like it's Isaiah. It sounds like a New Testament here. Listen to this. Isaiah 61, verse 10. It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. That same word, exult, we just saw. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels... For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. He will cause righteousness to sprout up. We don't do it on our own. Um, Again, in in Hosea, we talked a little bit about Hosea before, uh, but Hosea chapter 2, verse 20, uh, God declares, he says, I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. Uh, Our acknowledgement of God, our uh, good works, anything that we do, is as a result of his betrothal. Uh, And that betrothal is that initial salvation that we receive. It's the, the down payment of the Holy Spirit. It's the dowry that God has paid for us in our sin. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ paid the price. He said, will you marry me? When we were yet sinners not once we cleaned ourselves up. That's amazing. That's such grace that we can't fathom it. That we can't even even get it. So uh, the, the righteousness spoken by Isaiah here points ahead to a time when God will vindicate himself. That's, that's one thing that we see going on. God's gonna vindicate himself and he's gonna show himself to be righteous, uh, that all of this mercy and grace that he's done over time will be paid. Uh, and he's going to declare his people to be righteous, and then he's going to make them so. You know, We're going to, as we live out our life, we become what we already are. We become what we already are. God in Christ has said, you are holy, you are blameless, you are a saint. And we're not there yet. <laughs> None of us are there yet, but we are on the road. We are becoming the thing that we already are in Christ. Uh, and so he gives these gifts of righteousness to his bride, and his bride prepares herself to wear them. And this is this is us. We are his bride. With the, with the wedding now at hand, uh, we read this this further blessing here. Because in the New Testament, we get the image of a great wedding banquet. Jesus himself speaks of this parable in Matthew 22 and Luke 14 of the parable of the wedding feast. And so, we shift a little bit in verse 9 from being the bride from being this bride that has made herself ready to now the angel saying write this in verse 9 write this blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb we've been to enough weddings that our mind kind of initially goes to, yeah, we're going to be spectators. Which side are we going to be on? Are we going to be on the side of, you know, Jesus? Are we going to be on the side of the, uh, the, the, you know, bride? You know, no, sorry, this isn't the image here. Uh, this is you get invited to the the wedding. You get invited to the marriage. Uh, the same way that I don't invite other people to Teresa and my marriage, right? This is a a solemn union between two. Uh, This isn't a a party that we invite other people into our marriage. It is between one man and one woman for life. Uh, And so he's saying, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage. And then it says the supper of the Lamb. So we're going to get a comparison in verse 9. And a comparison. uh, Make sure you understand whether you're going to the marriage supper of the Lamb or in verse 17 the great supper of god read in verse 17 it says then i saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead he says come gather for the great supper of god to eat the flesh of kings the flesh of captains the flesh of mighty men the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men both free and slave both small and great again both small and great that was the same small and great Uh, That was there, praise our God, all you who servants, you who fear him, small and great. So whether you are mighty and a king or whether you are the lowest of servants, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What matters is your relationship to Christ. Are you his bride or are you the dinner that's being served? That's the picture. We're either going to feast. We're either going to feast at the marriage supper of lamb or we're going to be the feast. That's the picture. That is put here in chapter nineteen, and it's a that's a dark image, right? That's like, oh, oh, do I really want to go there? But that's where it leads us. That's the that's how it's making this comparison, um, and, and the same is done by Jesus in Matthew. Go to Matthew twenty-two, and we'll see his uh, parable of the wedding feast here. And I'll start in verse 1. It says, And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. What? They wouldn't come? Well, what? Why not? Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. They paid no attention, and they went off, one to his farm, another to his business, and while the rest seized his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. Wow. I mean, this is an image of God sending his messengers, his prophets, his people throughout all time to say, come, come to my feast. I'm I'm a, a king who is offering and inviting you to come and worship and celebrate with me. And people go, Nah, i got to tend things on my farm. i got my business to take care of. And they are showing themselves to be aligned with the harlot. They're, they are seeing other things as of more value than the king and his feast. And so he is angry. Verse 7, the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. He says, go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast, as many as you find. He says, he says, forget about those that were on the list to begin with. They weren't worthy. Go out and invite anybody that you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good, both small and great. And so the wedding hall was filled with guests. And then to draw it even closer he talks about what they're wearing what they're wearing when the king came in to look at the guests he saw there a man who had no wedding garment and he said to him friend how did you get in here without a wedding garment and he was speechless he had nothing to say the king said to his attendants bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called but few are chosen Many are called, but few are chosen. Those who are chosen are those who have been granted by God to clothe themselves with fine linen, pure and bright. Uh, And that's Jesus' words. And you can see the same thing in Luke 14, uh, in the other version of that. The king's judgment falls on those people who have rejected his invitation like those who worshipped the harlot. Those who reject and don't come. And those who come... But are not clothed in righteousness, because you can only be clothed in righteousness through Christ. And so it's only through Him. It's not. It's not just well I really wanted it, or well uh, you know I didn't have anything better to do. <laughs> no, it's it's only through Christ. And so John speaks of this blessing, this blessing that that blessed are anybody who is invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, because those who are, are invited by by Christ, Those who come in this way aren't just coming as spectators. Uh, they're just not watching. They're, they're part of the celebration. They are there dressed in uh, the fine linen. And then we see this image uh, that we're going to see again. Uh, I, I feel like I don't have to talk about it because if you go to Revelation 22, verse 8, Uh, It says, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with whom who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Uh, We see it twice (laughs) here that John is falling into this temptation to worship somebody besides God, uh, which I think is supposed to say that even John, the, the messenger here, is not yet fully prepared for the feast that once we are we're fully made pure once we've been uh once we've been purified and made ready for this there won't be an occasion where we fall down and worship and idolatry anything else we will fully recognize this because that's a question that broke my brain for a little while uh this was this was like three or four years ago i had a a student ask it uh or Yeah, I think it was a student at a youth group. So this must have been more than three or four years ago. It was a while ago. They said, okay, um, once we get into heaven, once we get into heaven and we're there, what's to keep us from falling away like Adam and Eve did in the garden? It was perfect then, and it's going to be perfect in heaven. So what's going to keep us from falling away? And I was like, I'm going to have to get back to you. (laughs) I was like... Wow, that's a really good question. I've never thought of that question. But I think the, that this this furnace that we live in, we, we live in a, in a furnace and we are being purified and made pure in this so that we are clothed in fine linen, bright and pure. Uh, so we, we not only are wrapped in the righteousness of Christ, but we have also been made pure through Tribulation through suffering, through life, to the point that when we get there, it won't even be on our mind. Like There won't even be anything else that we would consider doing because we've seen the glory that's there versus Adam and Eve having just been created and there was no other option. There wasn't anything else. They had never seen the negative side of sin. And so what did they do? They went and explored it. They went and explored it like we do. Um, we we, we kind of like getting that option and going, nah, I'm going to go over here and try it for myself. But these, these are people that have tried. They have been tried. And they recognize that Christ is the greatest and the highest honor and the greatest and highest glory. And they continue to go towards him. And we will continue to seek him and praise him and dive deeper into him because there's nothing that compares to him in this fullness.
1: still choose him. Yeah. We still choose him. There was that, <laughs> they didn't choose him. Yeah. So, so it's really kind of hard to put that because, like you said, they didn't know anything different. Yeah.
0: I mean, this is an invitation. I mean, here it says, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. When, when the... His servants went out and beat on the bushes and went out to the highways and the hedges and compelled people to come. There was no, there was no. It wasn't, it wasn't as if people were being dragged in with against their will. Uh, this is an invitation. It's a choice. It's a choice. And like you said, if you choose not to, then you choose not to, and you're left on the outside. But
1: we also have to roll it back. God knew. He knew that Adam and Eve were going to do what they did. So he knew that his son was going to be the sacrifice. Yeah. So all of that, so he knew it started with A and B, for the rest of it to go. Yeah. He, he knew that.
0: And that's another one of those concepts that breaks people's brains, is they're like, "Well, wait a second, was it from all time beforehand, or do we choose? yes <laughs> it's, it's both it can't be both those are mutually exclusive nope they're not i'm sorry i'm sorry you're not god uh so they're not he's outside of our dimension and our realm and, and he has capacities that we don't and it's like well that doesn't work you can't do it yeah yeah it does it does if you're god so from god's perspective it's all been planned he's he is enjoying the wedding feast right now because he's there it's its future, and he's in it as much as he is in the past and in the present. And so he's enjoying this feast with his bride currently, uh, knowing full well everything that's going to pan out and you know, not sweating over it at all. Uh, but us, we're going, how long? When's it going to happen? And he's like, Just trust me, trust me. Come, come. It's, it's prepared for you. Just come. Uh, and, and we might have to wait
1: Years.
0: No, we might have to wait till tomorrow night. But we're not. That's the amazing thing is, I don't think we've got to wait 10,000 years. I think if I die tonight, I'm there. I'm there. I'm celebrating at the wedding feast. It's it's done. It's, I'm I have accomplished that, and I've gone through the uh, the amount of time that I needed to be purified. I mean, why in the Bible do we see some people uh, live a little bit of life and then they're taken? They're gone you see Enoch taken that way you see uh, Elijah taken up in a in a chariot how can I justify how can I look at um, infants in the womb that are snuffed out besides the fact that God said yeah you're going to be with me it's your time that's well uh, he's he's making us ready however we need to be ready and some of us need 80 years. <laughs> some of us might only need 50. Some of us might only need none. Uh, that's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. So, okay. Let's pray and we will go eat some cake. Yeah. Father God, we thank you for your mercy. God, we thank you that you have invited us as, as sinners, as sinful as we are, to join with you in a union of... Harmony and peace and fellowship and work. God, in your marriage. God, we, we see this picture of union with you and we long for it. We, we don't feel it here. We don't uh, we live our lives and we're torn in so many different directions, as a uh, an adulterous wife would be. Lord purify our hearts and make us faithful to you and you alone. Bind us to you. Bind our wandering hearts to you because we are prone to wander. Help us in our race to set our eyes on Christ and run with fervor. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.